Okay, let's look at our scripture that can be found on page four. As we continue our sermon series, From the Throne to the Cradle, we're looking at various aspects of the incarnation uh, of God, that God became a man. And so we're looking at uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So let me read it for you. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among you, yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess, excuse me, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Well, I'm sure many of us have Christmas traditions that are in full swing as we are uh, uh, right in the middle of the Christmas season. Our family has one in which we watch, uh, it's, it's Christmas Charlie Brown. I don't know if any of you watch that, it's a great one. Uh, and there's a great scene that I enjoy right in the beginning in which Charlie Brown once again is dejected and sad and he doesn't know why it's the Christmas season and yet he's uh, feeling uh, just like he hasn't caught the spirit. And so he goes to the therapist, Lucy, as I often do with my wife, and you pay your money, a nickel in that case, and Lucy tries to diagnose to Charlie Brown what is his problem. He may have specific fears, if you'll remember, and she lists off this litany of fears. Uh, one is, Charlie, if you have hypengiophobia, you have the fear of responsibility. Perhaps, Charlie, you have allurophobia, which is the fear of cats. Or perhaps it's climacophobia, the fear of staircases. Maybe it's thalassophobia, the fear of the ocean. Or jephyrophobia, the fear of crossing bridges, which is clearly Charlie Brown's problem. It's many of our problems, frankly. And then finally she finishes with perhaps it's pantophobia, which is the fear of everything. But no, these are none of Charlie Brown's problems. As I reflected on, upon that list, I thought to myself, what is it the fear that all of us have? What I call the fear known as the human erasophobia. And that is the fear of not being first. Whether you recognize it or not, there is an ailment, a poison that is in all of our bloodstreams. And that is the fear of not being first. And it has plagued humanity since the beginning of time. When God created you and me, he created us to love God with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. It was built into our DNA. But if you'll remember, the first sin that was 
created that showed mankind for what it was, was that desire to be like God. As the serpent says, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And since then, all of humanity has traveled the path of my way. See, what plagues you and me is that people never love us enough, is that what we have is never enough. Our greatest desire is to be like God, but unfortunately that position is already taken. And so we suffer on. The greatest prison that we have is the prison of self. And so how is it that we can be freed from this self-centered life? See, that's what Christmas is all about, and it's what the incarnation is all about. That Jesus became last to free us from our need to be first. And since Christ himself, God in the flesh, has given up everything for us, let us give up everything for him and for each other. This passage is, alerts us to three truths. It gives us a path that we need to walk if we want to walk and be freed from this illness that plagues our hearts, that takes away our joys. Number one, we have to have the mindset of Jesus. What was his mind? For we are commanded to have the same mind as that of Christ Jesus. Number two, we're called to the same surrender as Jesus giving up his life that we might find life in him. And then finally, number three, we will experience the exaltation of Jesus as we're lifted up, esteemed in the eyes of God. So let us begin. But again, the main point, Jesus became last to free us from our need to be first. Let's look at point number one, the mindset of Jesus. If you remember this Philippians, this book of Philippians is not a book primarily concerned with theology, but primarily concerned with ethics. There's a church at Philippi, much like this church, and there's a problem. And that problem in the church of Philippi is that everybody wants to be first. And so it's infected their relationships with one another. Everybody is pushing and shoving, posturing for position. And so Paul is writing to them and using uh, Jesus and his life to demonstrate the life that they are supposed to live. And so he begins here at verse 3 saying, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Notice he's saying, Philippians, this is what is motivating your life right now. Selfish ambition, namely the desire to get something that you don't have, or vain conceit, meaning you have an inf in inflated uh, understanding of who you are. It's your conceit. In other words, I'm here and you're there, and therefore that's motivating how I'm relating to you. But Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but, in other words, there's another way. In humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. In humility, that word which is not uttered much in this American culture, what does humility mean? The Greek literally means in lowliness of mind. It's a process in the mind in which you are computing and calculating who you are and basically lowering yourself through having a 
humble understanding. The word hum humility actually comes from the word humus, which means of the earth. So do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in lowliness of your mind. Count others more significant than yourselves. Count is an accounting term in Greek. Do the math, if you will. Adjust the numbers to count others more important, more preeminent than you. Now, this is one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? There's a natural tendency in our mind to inflate ourselves, to move ourselves to the top, to go ahead and consider my needs more important than those of anyone else. And of course, we're very polite about the whole thing. We would never sort of display that for the world to see. But I is the most important thing. See, humble people don't think less of themselves. They simply just think of themselves less. But in reality, we think of ourselves very often. But the scriptures are saying, no, don't do that. Rather, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Expand the field of your vision, if you will. Don't have simply a tunnel vision mind. It's me and what I want, but what do they want? What's their heart? What's their interest? Have this mind among yourselves, says verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Notice that this is a command. The verb is actually in the imperative. You are, as a Christian, he is speaking to Christians, to think differently. To have a new mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you are a Christian, God has given you a new mind, a new capacity, if you will, for understanding. You no longer have to live in this way, in this pattern that you used to live, in the way that the world lives, but to live in a new way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And the scriptures go on to elaborate the mind of Christ Jesus. For he who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Again, think of this one Jesus. He was in the form of God. Now, he's not speaking of form in the physical sense, is he? God is a spirit. But he's communicating that this one God, Jesus Christ, the Son, was in the, of the same nature, of the same essence as God the Father. He was like him. It's the word morph, by the way, morphe, which means form. Although he was the same essence and nature as God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. There's that word count again. Same as that in verse 3, where it says to not count yourselves, count yourselves lower than other people, Jesus, though he was of the same equality as God, did not count equality with God as something to be held onto. He did not count his status, his rights, his position as God as something to be grasped. The word literally means to, to plunder, to go and take hold of and seize. No, he opened up his hand, didn't he? and emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? 
Some people have argued by him becoming a man that he gave up his divinity, that he became a man. But that's not possible. It's not possible for God to be un-God. Did you know that there are some things that are impossible for God to do? It's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God not to act righteously. It's impossible for God not to be full of glory and grace because that is his nature and his character. He cannot change who he is. God is God, and that's the end of it. No, he didn't empty himself of his Godhead. He emptied himself of his rights, of his prerogative, of all of the uh, uh, things that come along with his status as God. And he took on the form, there's that word again, of a servant. The word literally means slave. He became a slave, this God, the Son. Now, God is not a servant, is he? He's the owner. He's the master. He's the one to whom all majesty and glory and honor and service is due. And yet Jesus morphed into becoming a servant. Jesus expressed this best. If you remember the disciples, they were muttering among themselves. They were arguing about who was to get the best seat, you know, to the left and the right of Jesus. And he called them all together. And he said, you know that those who are regarded as the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, even I, Jesus says, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So how is it that Jesus uh, took on the nature of a servant. It says here, by being born in the likeness of men. Think about it. The unlimited, infinite God into the fallible, broken body of a man, of a boy. Man, by his very nature, is the servant of God, is he not? We were made in the image of God to glorify him. We were made in his image to reflect him. And God became a man and thus must be a servant. But this man was no man born into the palace of a king, was he? Born in obscurity, in a Roman outpost in the middle of a dusty country. Born in obscurity to no fanfare, but to a teenage pregnant girl. Born in stigma born to a couple out of wedlock, that he would suffer this stigma the rest of his life, born to suffer, to be mocked, to be misunderstood, to be spit upon, to be tortured, to be killed. In short, by becoming incarnate Jesus Christ, God the Son becomes vulnerable to all facets of human life, including suffering and death. See, Jesus, by becoming incarnate, reveals to us the heart of the Father. Many of you are parents of children, maybe new, uh, newborn children in your midst. And it's risky business being a parent, isn't it? Choosing to have a child. 
Because when you choose to have a child, you choose to become vulnerable to everyone around you. No longer do I have to simply worry about myself, but I have this child who I cannot protect at all times, who I open myself out to humanity, hurting, and I have to subject myself to this risk. See, it shows the heart of the Father in sending the Son. The Father who said at Jesus' baptism, to all, you are my Son, with you I am well pleased. And then to have to sit back and watch as this child, wondrous and beloved in the eyes of the Father, is mistreated, rejected, beaten, and crucified. It's difficult, if not impossible, to imagine the torn heart of God the Father. The incarnation testifies and puts God's own self as a loving parent at extreme risk for the sake of the world. So how do you see Jesus? He's a helpless babe. He's that little innocent child, to be sure innocent, in the hallmark card. He was a lowly teacher, itinerant preacher, who walked around doing good. He did all of those things. But we must foresee his humility in light of his majesty. For it's only in that that we see what true greatness is. One who instead of said, me, 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 looked to God and said, him, him, him. For we are called to follow his path, to have the mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. To live the same path, placing God first and ourselves second. Placing the person in our pew above ourselves. Living the life of loneliness and humility. It's the path of the mind of Jesus. But it goes even further with my second point, the surrender of Jesus. And being found in human form, not only marginalizing himself in that way, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, who was Jesus obedient to? He was obedient to the Father, wasn't he? The Father who sent him, the Father who asked him to go, to redeem all of humanity by becoming a human. And Jesus said, I will be obedient to you, Father, even to the point of death, because it was going to take death to redeem all of humanity. To the point of death on a cross. Now, the cross is very comfortable in our world. Many of us are wearing crosses. They're gold. They're beautiful. But back then, nobody was wearing a cross around their neck. It was not fashionable. It was... A, it was an instrument of torture. Indeed, it was also an instrument of humiliation. That was why the Romans came up with this form of uh, execution, by making someone carry their cross, by sticking them up on a cross where they would be hung naked and they would asphyxiate and die slowly over time. They were communicating to the world, the Roman Empire owns you. So don't go out of line. And the Son of God, the 
majesty of all, the one who created the wood upon which he was killed, the one who kept functioning the cells of the very centurions who were staking him to the cross, simply took it. What was the cost of obedience for Jesus Christ? We think to ourselves the excruciating, by the way, that's where the word excruciating comes from, out of the cross. The excruciating death was the sufficiency of the punishment, but that was just one point, wasn't it? See, the penalty for our sins is eternal torment, eternal aloneness, cast away from the presence of God. This was God the Son, who had always been in perfect oneness and unity and community with God the Father from the beginning of all time. And yet cast away, alone from God the Father. It must have torn his soul in half. And this was had to be eternal. I mean, some of us think that maybe Jesus was thinking, I just have to hold on. I just have to bear this for whatever number of hours and then it'll be done. No, that, that's not hell. Hell is eternity. See, that's the whole point, is when you go to be punished, you never pay off your debt, do you? And so to Jesus, it had to feel like eternity or it never counted, did it? Eternal aloneness, eternal torment, and eternal futility. I don't know if you've ever totaled a car before. It's not a great experience, by the way. You drive a car and it gets totaled. What does that mean, it gets totaled? Well, it means the car can no longer drive. But it's not as if the car no longer exists, right? It simply can't function. See, that's what hell is for humanity. It's a human person being totaled. It's not that they don't exist anymore, but it's that they cannot function in the way that they were designed to function. And humans were made to be loved, to give love, to be in relationship with one another. All of these things go away with hell. And Jesus experienced every single one of them. But he experienced them for each one of us. And so if there was anything ever that could be comprehended as infinite suffering, it had to be that which Jesus took upon the cross. See, Jesus knew what was coming. That's why in the garden he prayed, Oh God, my Father, if there's any way that you can take this from me, please do. But not as I will, but as you will. And why did he do it? Obedience to the Father and love for us. There's no other explanation given in the scriptures. It was obedience to the Father and love for us. And so in the incarnation of the Son and in his death on the cross, we see the greatest reversal in human history. From the highest God to the lowest criminal from the greatest honor to the greatest suffering. I think of the verse in Psalm 103, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. 
And as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. It is true for the Christian, but it is the exact opposite for the Son of Man in his crucifixion. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the wrath of the Father for the Son of God. And as far as the east is from the west, so great have the transgressions of humanity been piled upon his shoulders on the cross. He went down so that we might go up. He suffered wrath that we might know love. He experienced sorrow and grief that we might find joy and solace. It's in Jesus that we see true teaching about what it means to be great and about what it means to be humble. And as Jesus was called and responded in obedience to surrender to the Father, are we called to any different? In obedience, he said, my life is yours. Take it. I'm thankful for Isaiah, which tells us that after the suffering of the soul, he will see the offspring of his salvation and he will be satisfied. For there was a cross, but thank goodness there was a resurrection. You know what, want to know what it means to be a Christian? Jesus calls to us and says, come and die. Give away your life that you might find it. But we don't need to suffer the wrath of the Father. That's already been taken care of. It's in losing our life that we take up His. It's in stepping away from this world that we find the world that we were made for. He teaches us about humility toward God and he teaches us about humility toward one another. Are we willing to lay down our lives for one another, trusting our heavenly father? There's no greater picture of Christianity for the world than a community of people that are willing to love each other in that way. I can tell people about Jesus till till I'm blue in the face but it's when they see the love of Jesus manifested in my life, in the way I love my neighbor, indeed in the way that I love my enemy, that the true glory of Christ is revealed. Now this brings me to my final point, the exaltation of Jesus Christ. For there was a finish, was there not? Therefore God has exalted him highly and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's Jesus that God the Father has highly exalted and set on the throne. It's Jesus that God will turn to all humanity and say that at every knee you shall bow. This, this passage actually echoes Isaiah 45, 22 where God speaks to the universe, speaks to humanity and says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And yet we see that God has exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth 
and under the earth. You see what God has done? He's placed the Son above all. He's placed Him as the focus of all glory and all allegiance. And at one time, at His coming, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. That means everyone. It means Christians who will joyfully bow the knee and confess Him. And it also means atheists and skeptics. It even means Satan and the demons. All will bend the knee and all will confess. Some with everlasting joy and some with gritted teeth and hatred. But all will recognize and submit. But doesn't it make sense that it should be as such? For he is the true king, is he not? A king who dies for his people, who's willing to leave the throne room of heaven to the manger of an obscure, forgotten stable and to die a death on the cross. Jesus demonstrates to us the antithesis of our world and the antithesis of our fallen hearts. Because Jesus became last to free us from our need to be first. And since he gave up everything for us, this Christmas season, let us plant our flag and give up everything for him who's worthy of our lives, of our hopes, of our devotions. And let us live lives of surrender and sacrifice for one another. Indeed, even for our enemies. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Such beauty, such glory, such hope. We can't turn away from it this Christmas season. Let's embrace it. Let us bend the knee and lift up and proclaim. I'll finish with this thought. Wasn't it wonderful to hear this brass quintet, the U.S. Army's finest playing? You know, in some ways, I think that each one of us is an instrument made in God's hands. Playing a dirge or playing a glorious hymn, a tune to God the Father. We don't all play the same way, do we? We have different registers. Some sing with great heights. Some play with resonant lows and undergird all. And yet when they all come together, they create a beautiful, beautiful hymn. I don't know if you're a trumpet or a tuba. I don't know if you're a French horn or a trombone. But we each must decide what tune it is that we are to play. Jesus, I think, was a violin. He played his tune on earth with the sweetest of suffering and drew us to tears with the exaltation of his notes as he raised his voice in praise and suffering to God the Father. Let us be the instrument that God has called us to prepare to be. But we're not the conductor, are we? Jesus became last to free us from our need to be first. So take your place and play your song.
Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. And thank you, King Jesus, that you played such a beautiful hymn, that you freed our souls from their shackles and from our prisons of self. This Christmas season, let us take up our instrument and let us play the tune that you called us to play. Some in suffering, some in joy, some in plenty, some in want. But all with thanksgiving to you who give us the very voice and the very air we breathe that we might play a pleasant voice, a pleasant song together. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.